Let us begin our Monday Thursday sermon with prayer. O Lord, your words in the institution of your supper are plain and simple, but they defy our sin-tainted ability to understand. Therefore, we ask you to work through the words of our sermon that we may accept with a childlike faith the clear and simple meaning of your words, so that we may understand the blessings we receive and not spoil them with our own desire to make them conform to the laws of this world. Amen. Our text for our sermon is the combined passion history account of the institution of the Lord's Supper as recorded by Matthew in chapter 26, verse 26 through 28, Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 24, Luke chapter 22, verses 19 through 20, and 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 25. While they were eating on the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples. He said, take eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you for this is my blood of the New Testament which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This is the word of our Lord. During this Lent season, we have preached about the passion history of Christ under the theme, Rays of Divine Glory as Seen in Christ's Passion. And while we do not see Christ undergoing pain right now, Christ knows that the Sanhedrin is plotting his murder. He knows that in less than 12 hours time, he's going to be on that cross. And so our sermon theme, as we celebrate the institution of the Lord's Supper, has to do with that word in which he says, for this is my blood of the New Testament. The Greek word used that we translate as testament can be covenant, But it also was at this time in history, the Greek word that was used for a last will and testament. And so our sermon theme is rays of divine glory as seen in Christ's passion when he institutes his last will and testament. Now, just so that we don't miss it, let me give you a very detailed description of what happened after Christ broke that bread and distributed it around and then told them to take and eat. The disciples would have put that yeastless bread in their mouths and when they bit down and started chewing on it, suddenly blood started shooting out from Christ in all different places and chunks of flesh were missing, leaving teeth marks in his arm and neck and side. No. That's not what happened at all. And it's because that didn't happen that so many believing Christians do not believe the words of today's text. Take and eat. This is my body. Take and drink. This is my blood. The way he states it makes it clear that you have bread and you have body. You have wine, and you have blood. Now, some Christians, unable to accept this, and because of their theology, like Thomas Aquinas, the foremost uh, theologian of the medieval ages, change that word is, that copula in the Greek language, to this becomes. But that's changing the word of God. And others, and this really sprung up in the Reformation, although it was mildly taught by a, by a medieval theologian, Duns Scotus, uh, changed the word is to the word 
represents. This represents my body. This represents my blood. However, there is nothing in this text that tells us, and Christ told them this parable, or a comparison word, like the Greek word host, this is like my body. No, Jesus said this in plain language. And the language, as I said, makes it clear, bread and body, wine and blood. And in fact, if Jesus, who is the spokesman for the Trinity... If Jesus, who is true God, was unable to master the language that was needed for this, you would think that 30 years, 30 some years later, when the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write this, they would get it corrected and add those words. But no, that's not what happens. Why do people want to change this word to this becomes or this represents? It's because, let's admit it, this defies the laws of physics. Now, because chunks of Christ's body don't go missing as the disciples eat that bread, does not mean that Christ's words are no longer true. There is another uh, thing that we call in Scripture when God defies the natural laws that he created to govern this universe for you and me, and that word is called miracle. Whenever God does that, it's a miracle. And everybody, whether they change the word to become or they change that copula to this represents, every one of them believe in another teaching of the scripture that also specifically defies the laws of physics. And that teaching is the Trinity. See, it defies the laws of physics that God is one God, yet three persons. Some people have taught, oh, no, 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 there's three gods. And if you teach that, you are not a Christian, especially if you have read the Bible and see what the teaching is there. Others, uh, trying to uh, comprehend it, change to what's called modalism, like a child who's trick-or-treating and wants more tricks, so treats, so they knock on the door in one costume, and then they run home and change another costume. So, okay, we've been father, I'll put on this costume, now I'm son, then I'll run home, put on this costume, now I'm Holy Spirit. Wait a minute, were you the kid that was here a minute as the son? Better run home and put on the father costume. That, that doesn't work either. Scripture, maybe it doesn't use the word Trinity, but it clearly teaches we have one God, but three persons. This defies the laws of physics. So the very Christians who believe in the Trinity often will not believe in another miracle that defies the laws of physics where Christ's body and blood are present in and with the bread and wine. And so they ask the question, how can the infinite God be contained by the finite bread and wine? And first of all, Christ doesn't say my bread, my body and blood are contained in this. But the irony is they don't realize that that same logic it, uh, would also be applied to God taking on human flesh. Human flesh would be finite. How can the infinite be contained by that? That is a statement of gross unbelief, whether they realize it or not. And so we have a miracle here that takes place and defies the laws of physics. And this is accepted only by faith. It takes faith that God given you that faith to accept it because it is incomprehensible. In fact, everything we know about the Lord's Supper is recorded in the institution by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11. So 
there's not a lot of explanation. We have no reason to do anything but trust in God for the blessings that come from this. And by accident, because so many people have a hard time believing Christ's words here, the Lord's Supper has become a litmus test. When I was a kid in school and in science and we we wanted to test something to see if it was acidic or not, you put litmus paper in it. If it changed colors, it was acidic. Well, the Lord's Supper tells you if someone actually trusts in the word of God or teaches falsely. For example, saying, I have to subject the word of God, which has a lot of miracles to the laws of physics and other natural laws God created. If your pastor or your church teaches this becomes... Or this represents, you know, there is a major gap in which they do not trust the word of God. Try to correct them. Try to show them that they are actually guilty of unbelief here in the word of God. And if not, run. Go to somebody who will feed you who actually believes the word of God and lets it translate itself. Now, as I mentioned here, because of this miracle, we see rays of divine glory as seen in Christ's passion when he institutes his last will and testament because it's a miracle that only God can do. And that word that I said is a word, there's the Greek word for last will and testament is also a word that can be for covenant. Essentially, there are two covenants in the Bible. And the one is the good news of salvation in Christ. And the Lord's Supper falls into that covenant. It is a one-sided covenant. It is not you do your part and then God does his part. So... As an example, let me walk through one of the times God institutes that one, a one-sided covenant with somebody. You and I will know him as Abraham. At this time, he's known as Abram. And he has a problem because God has promised him that uh, he will have descendants. And of course, the Messiah will come from his child. And yet... He's past that age, and so is his wife, Sarah. And he says, Eleazar of Damascus, one of his servants, is going to inherit everything. So in Genesis 15, starting at verse 4, we're told, Just then the word of the Lord came to him. God said, This man will not be your heir, but instead one who will come out of your own body will be your heir. The Lord then brought him outside and said, Now look towards the sky and count the stars, if you are able to count them. He said to Abraham, or Abram, This is what your descendants will be like. Abram believed, and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. The Lord's already explained the covenant to him, and Abraham trusted in it, and he got a blessing out of that. Because of the coming Savior, he would be credited as righteous. But it doesn't just end there. He said, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. I give you this land as a possession. He said, Lord God, how will I know that I will possess it? The Lord said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Abram gathered all of these, divided them in half, and laid the two halves across from each other. But he did not divide the birds in two. Now, let me explain to you what's going on right now, because at this time, cuneiform exists in hieroglyphics, but the Etruscan alphabet and that does not exist yet. So 
In those days, if you had a two-sided covenant, like if you were going to the bank to get a loan, a contract, you would take those. You would take an animal, you would cut it in half. You would put each half across from each other, and the two members making the contract with each other would walk past those. If one of us breaks this contract, it's been divided in half, and may we be killed like this animal was killed. It was an act a, that you actually went through, and both parties... Because they had a, their end to keep went through it. Keep in mind, this is going to be a little different. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Then terrifying, deep darkness fell on him. The Lord said to Abram, Know this, your descendants will live as aliens in a land that is not theirs, and they will serve its people who will afflict them for 400 years. But I will surely judge the nation that they will serve. Afterwards, your descendants will come out with great wealth, but you will go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come here again because the guilt of the Amorites is not yet full. Okay, God states what the covenant is. Now, does Abraham have to do anything? All Abraham can do is reject it, right? Then when the sun had gone down and it was dark, suddenly a smoking oven and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. You'll notice Abram doesn't pass between the pieces. God, who is like the pre-incarnate Christ, does this by taking on the form of a torch. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. He said to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. I will give you the territory of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. God passed through it. God made the covenant. It was God binding himself making a solemn oath. This is the good news of salvation in Christ. This is a one-sided covenant. All Abram could do was reject it, which he did not do. This is the kind of covenant Christ makes with his body and blood. If you want to reject it in unbelief, you are only hurting yourself. But just for a comparison, let's take a look at a two-sided contract. And the most famous two-sided contract in all of the Bible occurs with the Israelites after God has delivered them from Egypt and led them to Mount Sinai. This essentially was, you guys keep to a person the civil, ceremonial, and moral laws I have given you, and I will be your protector, and I will make the land flow with milk and honey as I will send the rains and everything. So let's hear, but each party had to do therein. So let's hear that as recorded in Exodus 24 verses 3 through 11. Moses came and reported to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. Then all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He got up early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. He set up 12 memorial stones for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young Israelite men who offered whole burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings of cattle to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and put it in bowls and he splashed half of the blood on the altar. He took the book of the covenant and read it out loud to the people. So here's the covenant you guys are agreeing to. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will obey. Yes, let's enter this covenant. Two-sided contract. Moses took the blood and splashed it on the people. He said, look, here's the blood of the covenant which the Lord made with you by means of all these words. 
Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel went up. They saw the God of Israel. Under his feet, they saw what looked like a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky. The Lord did not lay his hand on the dignitaries of the people of Israel. They gazed at God and they ate and drank. After entering into this two-sided covenant, the Lord allowed for a fellowship meal to show the unity they have. Now, you and I know the rest of the story because the night when Christ institutes the Lord's Supper, it's the Romans that are ruling and the Sanhedrin has got to figure out how they can murder Jesus legally so that the Romans don't come after them. The people of Israel broke the contract one generation after the next. So God kept his covenant with Abraham. The Savior was his descendant and he was born in that land. But the people were not independent because they broke the two-sided contract. The, the good news that we get in the Lord's Supper is part of the contract, if you will, the one-sided contract, the good news of salvation in Christ. And so only God can make that contract. And you don't do anything but believe, and he even gives you the faith. And so we see rays of divine glory as seen in Christ's passion when he institutes his last will and testament, a miracle that only God can do. Now, when he institutes this to the, with the disciples, he says, we're told, then he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I have covered how that word New Testament is a covenant, but it's also a last will and testament. If we have decide to not believe this, we forfeit the blessings. Now, if you had an inheritance coming, and it was by this inheritance, you get everything that matters. As Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be given to you as well. If you have eternal life and everything, and you decide to change that contract, let's erase this and makes it become, become, or let's erase this and make this, change it to the word this represents. You are changing a wonderful blessing. It's unbelief and you are hurting only yourself. This is your inheritance. Christ knows in the morning those soldiers will cast lots for his clothing. The only thing he has left to give is his body and blood, which he gives to us in the Lord's Supper so that we get that gospel blessing, the very body and blood that won salvation for you. So this is the word of God in his last will and testament for you and I. Let's hold tightly to it. Let's not change the words because we will be be rejecting and hurting only ourselves. He said, take eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He also said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The Greek preposition that we translate here in is ice. And it is one of, if you finish the worship service and you go home, you're planning on going home, you travel home and you arrive at your destination, you end up on your couch inside your home. That is the intended goal and the goal achieved. The intended goal and the goal it gives is that you have a remembrance of Christ. Now, this means that it actually empowers you to remember that it was Christ's body and blood given for you so that you receive its benefits. And by receiving it and the meal itself is a public confession that Christ has done all the work of your redemption. When we change those words to this represents, then it becomes a different kind of remembrance. It depends on your power. 
It's like a guy who's been in a foxhole and a grenade comes and he throws his body over it and he, and he stifles the blast so the other soldiers live. So the soldiers go later to that man's gravesite and they say, thank you, thank you, you gave your life for me. And I'm not trying to lessen Christians being thankful for the Lord, but that's all the Lord's Supper becomes and it doesn't empower them to reach the actual goal of having that confession and receiving that body and blood of Christ so that it empowers them to remember him and cling desperately to that one-sided covenant of salvation. Now that one-sided covenant of salvation includes forgiveness. And Jesus said, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The preposition is the same here. It, it, it The goal and the result is forgiveness of sins. The, you receive the very body and blood of Christ that won forgiveness for you. So you come to the Lord's Supper and you get forgiveness. When you hear the word, you get, you get to hear forgiveness. When you read the word, you get to see forgiveness. When you get come to the Lord's Supper, you get to, shall we say, taste forgiveness. Why would you want to deprive yourself of that blessing? Well, once you're forgiven, you are saved. The last thing I want to point out here is all the yous that Jesus says in the institution, they're plural. They're not singular. Christ celebrated this as a very intimate meal with the very people who in a few hours time will in fear run when Jesus is arrested. Satan had asked to sift them as wheat, but he didn't get them. Because Christ had strengthened them, if you will, maybe not to the point where they didn't run. But he looked out for them. This causes a unity because it's the body and blood of Christ we receive. Christ is true God. So when you partake of it, if you believe you are getting bread and wine and you believe you got the Lord's, you're getting the Lord's body and blood. Even unbelievers get the Lord's body and blood, but then they take it to their detriment. They're sinning against it. But when you know that's what you're getting, you have the wonderful comfort of knowing you're, you have a vertical relationship that's being strengthened with Christ. He is the cornerstone. You are the bricks that form his temple, and it, it strengthens that relationship. But we take it together. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ in the invisible church is strengthened, and the people that we take it with, our relationship with them is strengthened as well. So all of these blessings that comes means that this last will and testament is a word that we want to cling to tightly because God's giving us nothing but blessings in it. We want to receive those. And so as we celebrate the institution of the Lord's Supper, we see a rays of divine glory as seen in Christ's passion when he institutes his last will and testament. A miracle that only God can do, but it's a miracle that is meant to be nothing but pure blessing for those who believe it. And so it's the word of God and we hold tightly to it. Amen. Now to him who is able, according to the power of this, uh, uh, the power that is at work within us to do infinitely more than we ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout generation, all generations forever and ever. Amen.